You know, there's some key moments in life that you find yourself trying to capture and that you don't want to miss. And for us as a young family, we've definitely had some of those. And for many of you who have had your own children, I'm sure you can identify with this, that you just have those moments in time that you're, you're so thankful that you have the opportunity to document. Those critical moments or big moments in life, especially as you're raising young ones, that you're so thankful that you get to capture. And it's moments for our family, like when Riley, we were trying to teach her how to crawl, and she was a rather hefty baby who was not very motivated to want to move at all. And so we opened a fudgesicle, and we got down on the ground in front of her and would put it in her mouth and then pull it forward, getting her to lunge with us in order for her to learn how to crawl. And I don't know about you, but I'd crawl over glass for a fudgesicle. And so I assumed, I was confident that it would work. I remember her first birthday and trying to capture the moment, the, the excitement of her first celebration, really, of life together with our friends. Uh, not really her friends, it just our friends there, but... It was that day that we realized what an emotional eater Riley was because as everybody began to sing, she got really overwhelmed and began to cry and then just started taking fistfuls of cake while crying, tears streaming, stuffing her face over and over again. It was an incredible moment. <clears throat> and then there was Keegan. Keegan has is, is always been rough and tumble and he was nine months old when he started pulling himself up on things and then letting go and trying to take steps forward. Uh, thankfully, Keegan was wearing a helmet at that stage in his life that was helping to reshape his head, and it ended up doubling as basically a protective device uh, because he was so rough and because we were so overwhelmed by the fact that he was so active at such a young age. You know, one of my favorite moments, though, that we've captured of our kids is a video that I shot when my kids had become interested in Star Wars. They'd found some cartoon I think it was on Disney Plus, and as they got hooked into it and started getting books from the library, I told them, I think it was over Christmas break two years ago, I'll sit and I'll watch the old classic ones with you. And so we get to the point where we've gone through the hokey first three, remember the pod race scene, and it's just super hokey cheesy. Then you get to the good stuff, it's the classics, and we got all the way to that moment where Darth Vader is standing with Luke Skywalker, you might remember the scene, and the Emperor is present with them. And you remember that Darth Vader ends up revealing his true identity. There's that moment, Luke, I'm your father. And I had pulled my phone out and and hit record on a video. And rather than watching the TV, I'm watching the two of them sitting next to me. And the looks on their faces were incredible. Riley just jaw open, like mouth wide, saying, I can't believe this. And Keegan sitting there going, what? (laughs) It was this incredible moment in time and a great great moment for a parent, but it was this incredible moment that you wouldn't want to miss, these significant fun things, snapshots that you get. There's a snapshot in our story that for Jesus and his new family, in a sense, for the disciples, this snapshot, snapshot excuse me, is incredibly significant because it's the moment in time where Jesus makes it clear what his identity really is. It's the moment in time where it, it kind of it settles in for the guys, where Jesus asks them the all-important question, not just who do men say that I am, but who do you say that I am? This is the high point so far in Jesus' ministry, in our log, our story, as we walk through the Gospel of Mark together. This is even the dividing line in two different portions in the Gospel of Mark. It's not just that we're halfway through and that we're in the eighth chapter and there's only 16, but this is now all of a sudden the end of the first theme in Mark's Gospel. See, the first half of Mark's Gospel is all about Jesus slowly, progressively, patiently revealing his identity to his followers. The second half, though, is going to be him instantaneously, like not not progressively, no, super clearly, he's going to reveal his purpose. So one half, the first half, is about identity, who Jesus really is. It climaxes, the pinnacle of it is where he asks them the question, who do you say that I am? But then the second half begins right after that, where he's not progressively doing anything, he is immediately beginning to tell them, and this is my purpose, this is why I've come. We're going to look at that pinnacle mountaintop type of a moment today. It's the message, the first half, that the king has arrived, but then the second half of Mark's gospel, what we'll see and be introduced today, is that he's not the king that anyone had anticipated. He's not the kind of king that they were expecting. You see, they were looking for some sort of a political leader. That's what they were hoping for, a figure who would come and topple the previous political system that existed in their lives and oppress them. But Jesus would not march in with an army into Jerusalem on the heels of him revealing his 
his identity. No, he wouldn't come yielding or wielding a sword to fight against those who are in power. Instead, he will march in in the future on a donkey, not a white horse this time around. Instead, he'd arrive not to shed the blood of other people, but he would arrive so that his own blood could be shed on behalf of other people. That's what he's going to reveal to them. We've now arrived at this pivotal turning point where we've walked through roughly three years of Jesus' ministry. And now what we're going to look at is just the final weeks of Jesus' life. So the pace in Mark's gospel comes almost to a screeching halt from three years in fast pace in just eight chapters to now eight more chapters that will just log the final weeks and months of Jesus' life if it, as it's coming to a close. Now, it's, it's easy for us. We open Mark's gospel, chapter one, verse one. We read the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the son of God. And, and as soon as we start right from the onset, we know who Jesus is. But we have to remember that that's not the experience of the guys who are around him. The experience for them is that they're, they're blue-collar fishermen. It's, it's Levi the tax collector. It's zealots who in back alley are shanking guys who are tax collectors. And Jesus comes to them and begins to teach. And they're awestruck. Jesus comes into their villages and begins to do miracles. And they're overwhelmed. And then Jesus calls them to follow him. And they're so moved because they didn't expect an invitation like that. Remember, it's such a, an honor to be asked to follow a rabbi, to be one of his disciples. And if they're already in the workforce, it's telling you, They've already been passed over. And now this honor is placed on them, an honor that was so different. Think of this, so different. Jesus did it so very different than everyone else in the culture because everyone else would wait as a rabbi for people to come and beg and plead with him. Can I please follow you? But Jesus instead makes himself vulnerable and goes to other people and says, would you come and follow me? This becomes really the rhythm for Jesus of how he's going to interact, not just with them, but even with us, where he'd make himself incredibly vulnerable. The clearest portrait of that is him naked on a cross, crying out, Father, forgive them. So vulnerable without a guarantee of a return on that investment of love and sacrifice. And Jesus goes out to these guys. And then as he calls them to himself, he begins to reveal himself to them. But they're not seeing it so clearly. Not like we are, where we get the little hint right at the beginning of Mark's gospel about what his true identity is. They're they're not yet getting it. In fact, that's the previous story we just looked at, right? It's where Jesus is exasperated. He's even frustrated, not just at the Pharisees and the other religious leaders and the Herodians, that they're not seeing him clearly, but it's because he also looked the direction of his disciples and said that they were failing to see him clearly. Do you remember in your Bible, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 17, where Jesus, being aware of this argument that's happening with the guys, he says, why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? You have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of fragments did you take up? And they said 12. And also I broke the seven for the 4,000. How many large basketfuls of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. So he said to them, how is it that you still don't understand? You see, the disciples, Jesus makes it clear that they're really no different than than these other people, the, the religious leaders who aren't yet getting it. They're not seeing him clearly yet. He's saying that you're just like them. You have eyes that are yet to see. You have ears that are yet to hear. That's wording from the Old Testament. The prophets would say that about the people of God when they were failing to either see what God was doing or to yield to what God was doing. You see, they have a view of Jesus, but it's flawed and incomplete. And the proof of that was, remember, they melted down. They got overwhelmed. They freaked out when they realized, hey, we're, we're, we're journeying to a new place and all of us forgot to bring a meal with us. We only have one single loaf of bread. And, and their freak out moment revealed that they had the same heart issue that the religious leaders did, that, that they were full of unbelief still. And remember, we agreed that, that worry is really often nothing more than unbelief in disguise. So much of the time in our lives. Now, quickly, before we look at the next story that Mark records for us, I want you just to remember this next story we're about to read. This is a real story about a real person's life. And it's just a few short verses about a person who loses their sight and and is brought to Jesus that Jesus could touch and heal him. And we just need to remember this is a real story with a real family and a real human being being represented who who here has lost their ability to see. I mean, it's funny in the COVID era, not funny, sorry, wrong, poor choice of words. But in the COVID era, for so many people, they've realized how significant it is to lose any of your senses even just your taste and smell. 
For me, as I heard some of my friends talking about what that did to them and how that affected them emotionally and psychologically, to be a couple of weeks without the ability to taste or smell, that alone made me rethink, like, I don't know, maybe I should go get vaccinated. Because I thought, that sounds so frustrating and so disheartening. But can you imagine if the the sense that you had lost was more than that? If you now all of a sudden found yourself in a silent world, well, that'd be far more difficult. What if a side effect of this disease was that you found yourself living in in an eclipsed, invisible, pitch black world where where the sense that you lost was your, your sense of sight, your ability to see that you were a person who now found yourself trapped in a lightless world, that's the, the person that we're finding their story here. And, and that person is brought by the hand to Jesus. Look at verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida and they brought to him a man or a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And the man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he restored and saw everyone clearly. And then Jesus sent him away in his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in that town. The story is really brief, but I think we're meant to feel some of the relief that this man experienced, some of the joy that we're we're meant to pick up on some of the emotion, maybe even the tears. We're meant to pick up on even the idea of a re-entry into society, maybe even back into a a workplace or a relationship or a home. This is a really unique miracle for Jesus in Mark's gospel in at least a few different ways. The first being, this is the first blind person Jesus has touched and given his sight to. And you remember the prophet Isaiah had said, this is one of the ways that you'll know that Messiah has truly come from heaven is that he'll give sight to the blind, and Jesus is now doing that. One of the other things that's really unique about this miracle for Jesus, though, is the fact that it was progressive and not instantaneous. And yet it was still miraculous, wouldn't we agree? Sometimes we classify things as only a miracle if it happens in an instant, but for Jesus in this moment, it didn't just happen right away. It was a progressive miracle that took place, where he touches the man, and what the man begins to see is just blurry figures. For him to even be able to describe, they kind of look like trees, tells me that this man has not always been born blind because he knew what trees even looked like. Which even makes this more gut-wrenching to me. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose that ability to live a portion of my life being able to see and not be able to see my wife's face again or to look at my children and see how they've grown and changed. To miss those moments and all of a sudden as his eyes are open, what he looks and sees is still blurry, it's still foggy, it's not yet clear. It's not yet totally being perceived. It's progressive. It's not instant, but it was a miracle that took place in totality. In the end, Jesus made him able to see again. There's a part of this that I think we're meant to just step back from and go, this is, this is sometimes maybe how God works in my life. Is that sometimes his miraculous work in my life, it's not going to be just instantaneous. It's going to be progress. It's going to be progressive. It's, it's not just how it works in every person's life that the first time even they hear the gospel, that their life is changed and their heart is opened. It might be a progressive work of God softening their heart. There's a part of this story that I think is supposed to breathe a, a breath of fresh air into our hearts where we realize that we ought not to lose heart and, and to stop praying for the people that we love. That God's work is progressive and patient in people's lives. Whether that's a healing we're asking for, be persistent, don't give up. Or it's a person you're praying for, God soften their heart, don't give up. Because the way that Jesus works in this moment is that it's a progressive move of his spirit, a progressive miracle that takes place. The other thing that's unique in this story is that Jesus spit on the guy. And we've seen this once before. You might remember in the past, though, he spit on his hands. And then in that story, he touched a man's ears like he gave him a wet willy. But but in this story, it seems like he's not spitting on his hands. It seems like he's like spitting on the guy. We, we can't quite figure out why. And there's lots of opinions. Some some might assume as you read this, well, maybe Jesus didn't like this guy much. But if you've read much of the story, you realize that that just can't be true. In antiquity, they believed that people who were given authority in the public eye, like those who were governing authorities or teachers or rabbis, 
there was a legend that the spittle from their mouth had healing power. In fact, uh, uh, Tacitus, he records and narrates a story about the emperor, about people being brought to him, asking him, Emperor Vespasian, to spit on them because they believed his spittle held healing powers. Vespasian didn't like the, this theory or this legend because he realized he was just a man and his spit was not going to heal anybody. And so he tells the story of him being deeply conflicted. And so maybe it's Jesus leaning into that legend where this man and others around him would receive the idea that, oh, if you just give just a bit from your mouth, maybe that would touch him. Or maybe, kind of like we did with the deaf man, remember, it was almost like simple sign language that Jesus would do with the guy by touching his ears and touching his tongue. And maybe instead of sign language, this in a sense is like a sound language for this person. Or maybe... It's because the guy's eyes are crusted shut with years of infection. Maybe what Jesus did was he healed the man miraculously so that he was able to see, and then he began to massage uh, the, the, the infection, the crust, the gross stuff that had, had closed his eyes shut tight, that he began to wipe and to massage it gently so that his eyes could be open and he could begin to see that Jesus had, in fact, healed him. Whatever the case, it seems like this is... Just like Jesus always did, it's him drawing faith out of an individual. Whatever the reason, I'm confident of this, this wasn't a rude moment, it wasn't a gross or demeaning moment. This was some sort of a gentle and intimate moment. In fact, your mind might go back to a place that mine goes back to, and that's the Garden of Eden, where God just speaks things into existence. The stars, the plants, the animals... But then God stoops down and forms from dust. The imagery is that as if God's got down on his hands and knees and scooped up the dirt to fashion man with his own hands and then to breathe life from his own nostrils into the chief of all that he created, the pinnacle of creation, those that he made in his own image, mankind, those that he fashioned with his own hands. And for this guy, made in the image of God, to be made whole again, to be made well again, God reached, in a sense, out of heaven with a gentle hand and got close enough for this man to feel his very breath on his face. And he touched in that moment, that intimate moment, he touched him and he healed him. Remember in the story, before Jesus does anything, as we've started to see as his pattern, he takes the guy by the hand away from the crowd. And maybe this is just rooted in an expression of his care for this man, that Jesus didn't want him to be some public spectacle, much like he had done with the deaf man just a chapter before. Or maybe it's because of Jesus' previous interaction even with this city. When he had come here before, when he left, he said that there will not be any more miracles here because they had rejected him. He warned them of a looming judgment that would come. And so maybe Jesus wasn't willing to perform another miracle for them, but he was so moved with compassion for the man that he led him away from the crowd and outside the city and he touched and healed him. Because remember, the miracles of Jesus are not the major work or purpose of his life. They were, however, the byproduct and an expression of his love for people. The real reason he came was not just to make people well or whole. The real reason he came was to set up and establish a kingdom, which meant that he would suffer and die in place of our brokenness. But he would be so moved with compassion that he would touch and heal. And it didn't just give credibility, remember, to the fact that he was claiming to be God. Remember what his healings did to give you some insight into where you're going and what he's doing, that he's redeeming and restoring the world. It's reminding us that it's not, the miracles of Jesus are not meant to be just viewed as a challenge to your mind so much as they're meant to be viewed as a promise to your heart that the world that you and I want is coming. Where he wipes away every tear, where people are made whole, where people are touched and healed, where people are no longer hungry, instead they're fed. Where people are no longer outsiders, they're lepers who are brought back in, they're made insiders, they can belong again. And this is another one of those beautiful moments where Jesus takes someone by the hand, alone, aside, and heals them. And maybe one of the reasons he'd do that is because he wanted this man to trust him. And I wonder, did he just simply take him by the hand and begin to walk? Or did Jesus lean in and just whisper something simple like, you can trust me? And the man was willing to go his way with Jesus. After all, again and again in the Gospels, Jesus is looking to build faith in people. In fact, that's exactly what this whole story is about, is building faith in people. 
Think about this. I believe that this story about the blind man is absolutely, completely true. It happened. But I want you to think about this story on another layer and level. Because I believe it's recorded for a second and very important reason in our story. I think it's recorded as an illustration of something. I think it happened, undoubtedly. It really happened. This guy is healed. But there's a few things I want to draw out of this passage. And and maybe the first you'll want to just write this down so you can think it through. But the first is this, that this is an illustration anyone can see. It's an illustration anyone can see. This is a genius literary device that Mark uses here. Think of this. This is the sovereign, sovereignly aligned moment by the Holy Spirit that all of a sudden gives an illustration to something. It illustrates the disciples' spiritual ability to see. Remember, right on the heels, this happens right on the heels of him looking and saying, you don't yet get it. You see, but you don't see. He calls them blind. And it's right on the doorstep of the following story, which we'll read in just a moment, about who they believe Jesus to be, which is all about the light bulb coming on where they all of a sudden realize, Jesus, this is who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But right now, they're like this man who are not yet seeing Jesus completely clearly. Like trees, maybe. It's a little blurry still, but they're yet to land on the reality of who Jesus is. Now track with me. For so many people, I think this is the tension they live in. I see him. I see that maybe he's good. I see him. I see that maybe he could be trusted. I see him. I see the outline. I see fragments. I see bits and pieces of who God is or bits and pieces of what grace looks like or what his love seems to be. But I'm yet to fully see him with clarity, clarity enough for me to stand up and say, Jesus, this is who I know you to be. Because that's what the story is about. Much like Jesus' work in the blind man's life, the the disciples are still seeing reality in a blurred sense. It becomes so much more of an illustration of them, though. It becomes a story that begs you and I to grow in our faith in the identity of Jesus. It's asking us to be clear about what we think about him. In fact, you're going to start reading with me beginning in verse 27, the story that comes on the heels of this. But you might want to do this. If you have a phone with you, go to our church website because this is going to introduce us to a place called Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi specifically. And if you go on our church website, so olivebranchcf.org, if you go there, there's a tab there that's going to be Mark Caesarea. And you can see some images as I talk through this so that it gives you a visual of what Jesus and the guys were seeing and then even a visual of what it looks like today. But it's, I think, helpful as we kind of tackle this story and jump into these things together. In your story, in verse 27, it says, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And you know the story. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And Matthew's gospel, it's a little bit more even of what he says. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one. Okay, if you're on the website, you're starting to see pictures. Uh, OliveBranchCF.org. Click the Caesarea little tab. Or if you're online and just listening online, OliveBranchCF.org slash Caesarea. Caesarea Philippi is a pretty secluded place. If you go there today to Israel, it's about an hour or two drive north of anything else that really is worth seeing. It's a pretty remote location where if you go much further up into the mountains, you can actually look towards Lebanon from a mountaintop and you can even look towards the east and see Syria. It's this remote area that ancient historians tell us they refer to it as, quote unquote, the strip mall for the gods. This was the one-stop shop for all of your pagan needs. In fact, in the first century, the newest monument, the newest temple that had been erected there was for Caesar, which is why the, the, the community there was renamed from Panias or Panias. Uh, it was renamed Caesarea Philippi because Herod the Great, he's infamous from the Christmas story, he builds Caesar a temple there out of imported white marble and he names the place after Caesar and after one of his sons who's given oversight over that region, his name is Philip. 
This city is built around idolatry, though. It's showcasing the worship there, and you'll see it in the pictures, of their king Caesar, who they referred to, and remember, is even imprinted on their coins, the son of God. And then next to it was a temple to Zeus. Zeus was in Greek mythology, the god of heaven. And then there was a third temple that was present. It was a temple to Pan. The Greek god Pan, a goat-like figure who's become the icon of the occult and of Satanism itself. In fact, by the fourth century in church history, if you know church history, you know that uh, church historians, early church leaders began to reference Pan synonymously, use him interchangeably, really as the personification of Satan himself. This is the God of the underworld. This is this is a messy scene uh, of gross idolatry where they worship They worship Caesar, or they go and they worship the God of heaven, that's Zeus, or they go worship the God of kind of of the underground, of uh, of the spirit realm. They, They worship Pan, who is the God of nature, but had access to the dark spirits that that dwelt uh, in a hidden realm away from and out of sight from humanity. One scholar I read referred to it as the center of pagan worship. You'll see even in the pictures, there's, there's little alcoves and niches that are chiseled into the rock where they'd have different icons and, and gods that were there that people would come from, from near and far to worship. Okay, so I'm going to give you a five-minute nerd ramp, so buckle up. <laughs> Listen, this area of pagan worship, it actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you remember in the Old Testament, the god Baal, Baal, uh, remember, that God was actually worshipped up in the northern regions of Israel. This is, there's 14 different uh, ancient shrines and little places of worship all throughout this region that were found for him. This was the hotbed of his worship. When the Greeks came to town with Alexander the Great, they brought with them Greek mythology. Pan became the God who all of a sudden begins to be worshipped in this very same location in a cave that you'll see pictures of. And a spring that bubbles up out of that cave that becomes the main tributary that flows into the Jordan River. The Jordan River is like the life vein that, that feeds and funnels throughout that whole region of the world. And so for them, they attribute that God is providing life for all who live there. He's the God of nature because out of nature, he's giving life to everyone. But he's the God who, who is the protector and the only one who can pass from the realm of men to the spiritual realm. It's dark and it's ominous. The stuff that went on there was twisted. And by the time Jesus and his disciples arrive there, there's also that other uh, thing that's dedicated there to that uh, to Pan, that that uh, person from Greek mythology that's the half goat, half man image. And so, because it's been dedicated to Pan, that's why they rename it Panias, or in Arabic, it's Banias, because there's. Uh, there's no P sound in the Arabic language. It's just a B sound. But that's, that's what it's known as even today if you go there. It's not just Caesarea Philippi. It's known as Banias, or some people call it Banos, which just sounds too much in Spanish like a bathroom. And so most of us, well, I guess you could think of it that way. But this guy, Pan, here's your nerd rant. He's a prominent god in Greek mythology. He's the son of Hermes and the grandson of Zeus himself. And many pagans believe that Pan lived this this spirit entity, this gnarly thing, lived in this mystical cave. Pan's a fertility god, and so he's, he's worshipped with gross sexual practices, and he's referred to as the god of nature. He's from where we get our English, English concept and word panic. That's where it comes from. Even pandemic comes from this idea. Isn't this interesting, the timing of this? Like, that a part of this story is Jesus going to that place and saying, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's putting himself, setting himself in contrast to, and as a greater than even the one who causes panic and a pandemic, a global sense of panic. That Jesus is saying, I'm greater in authority of all of them. There is some relevance here. Listen, this is a, a dark and frightening, ominous character in history, often associated with sexuality and worshiped in gross sexual practices, including bestiality. This is so broken that very few historians even write much about it. They use little cliches and things to dance around the terms or dance around the reality of some of the stuff that happened there. And in that, in that cave where they called the Pool of Pan, they used to take sacrifices and they'd throw them into the water. And if they sunk into the deep pools of that spring, well, then the, the sacrifice was accepted. But if they floated to the top, they'd keep throwing more and more sacrifices in. And historians, uh, they, they carry with them these rumors that it's not just animals that were thrown there, but they're throwing human beings into these things. Things. And they called that pool the gates of Hades. 
Now think, remember, Jesus went here and said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. To the pagan mind, the cave at Caesarea Philippi created a gate to the underworld where evil spirits emerged into the realm of man. It was a big deal for Jesus to go there. To a place that I said, uh, few historians will even give the details of because it was so dark and twisted, the things that happened there. He's taking the good Jewish boys basically on a road trip to Las Vegas, showing them the absolute worst, most immoral place, saying this is not going to prevail. He takes them to the actual place called the gates of hell and says the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We will triumph even over a place like this, the place where a visitor could worship. Think about it. Caesar, the political god on the left. Or pan the powers of the natural world and the spiritual realm in the center. Or the powers of the the spiritual realm of heaven. They'd worship Zeus to the right. And Jesus going there was saying, I can stand up among and above every other god or every other king or every other ruler. What Jesus is saying is, I'm bringing you here, guys, to tell you I'm not just a king. I'm not just a god. I am the king and the god. That's why he brought them here. And the place of this pagan worship... Uh, to To the son of the great Greek god of heaven, Pan... To the place of worship, to the son of the, 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 the Roman Empire, the king of the Roman Empire, who called himself the son of God. Jesus will show up and reveal himself. I am the true son of God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, is what Peter will say. It's significant that Jesus chooses to ask this immensely profound question here, since there's few areas in all of world history, in the entire world, that are so steeped with important religious importance and significance and influence. He's deliberately setting himself up against the background of the world's religions and all their splendor and glory and asking his guys, compare me to them. Who am I really? These are those that everyone else is pledging their allegiance to, but who am I? Now, in our modern culture, what would this look like? Where would Jesus show up to? If you were to stand and look for what what are the idols, what are the the places of worship, what are the things we place our trust in, where would he show up to ask this question? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Is it a White House? Or is it Wall Street? Would Would it be in Hollywood's hills or would it be in Silicon's Valley? If it were in your life today, where would he stand when asking this question? Would he arrive in your workplace at your job? And say, who do you really think I am? Because if, if I really am who you are saying that I am, that'll affect the way that you interact with people here. Would he show up in your garage next to a car? Would he show up next to some person you know that, that you know that you shouldn't be flirting with? Would it be at a banking institution where your retirement is being secured? Would it be in your bedroom next to a Wi-Fi router? Would it be next to your spouse? Because if he's really who he says he is, if I really believe it, then even the way I treat them will look different. We all worship something. We do. We all worship something. I mean, what competes for your attention, your affection? What do you value most? What does your thought life tell you about who or what is Lord of your life? What is the way that you you spend and invest your time and your money? What does that communicate to you about the value system that you've enslaved yourself to? What is the amount of time that you spend worrying about, fill in the blank, tell you about what you actually worship? Because we all worship something. You see, in the story, there's an illustration here that anyone can see, but for the people who are present with Jesus, they're not yet seeing him clearly. Really quickly, a second thing. There's also not just an illustration, there's a question here. There's a question that everyone must answer. Jesus will ask them, who do men say that I am? And they start to respond. Well, you know, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some will say you're a prophet. Now you need to know, even to say that he's a prophet, it's a big deal. It's been 400 years in Israel's history of silence without a prophet. To say that was an honor, but it's falling short of who he really was. In the 21st century, who would we say that he is? Who does our culture tell us he is? Some would say maybe just a peace-loving hippie. Or he's a wise moral teacher. He's the first real feminist. Or other people would say the opposite. They'd say he's a regressive misogynist. 
Some would say he's a Republican, others a Democrat. Some would say, well, not at all, he's a libertarian. Or some would say he's the embodiment of creator God. While others would just say he's a liar and he's fooled so many. But more important than who do others say that he is, it's his next question, but who do you say that I am? And you remember in our story, Peter responds and says, you are the Christ. Or in Matthew's gospel, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach. In Hebrew, in Greek, it's the Christ, the Christos. It's literally the anointed one. It's a title that was given to all of Israel's ancient kings because all of them at their coronation were, were poured over. Oil was poured over their head and their shoulders to anoint them as a, as a picture of God has chosen this person. And we believe that God's spirit, as pictured in that oil, will use this man to lead us. God, we trust you. But that title became known not just as synonymous with every ancient king, but as echoing forward throughout history to foretell of the promised king, the one king, the king of all the world, the one who's coming, the king to end all kings. And Jesus' disciples, for them, when, when Jesus takes them on a road trip, and when it became clear where they were headed, they must have been shocked because of uh, the fact that Jesus is taking them, in a sense, to the red light district, a place where they would have been appalled and would have avoided at all costs. It's a city of people, people who are eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. And Jesus challenged his followers. I brought you here because we're going to storm the gates of hell. Remember, he says the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And in the ancient world, the gates were, were defensive structures that were meant to keep an enemy out so they weren't able to advance. And Jesus is saying that nothing, not even hell itself, can withstand the reality and power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he's challenging his followers not, not to hide what they have and not to hide from evil that would withstand them, but to storm the gates of hell. Okay, real quick, little two-minute commercial. During 2020, uh, Israel is one of the places that very quickly went in hard lockdown and closed its borders. One of the good things that came from that is that they ramped up archaeological digs because you can be spread out and playing in the dirt and not near people during the pandemic. And they ramped up digs in specific biblical sites that have significance. This is one of them, Caesarea Philippi. One of the things in 2020 that was found and then published by November of 2020 was a church that was built on top of the ruins of the place that they referred to as the gates of hell. The place that Jesus took the guys has by the fourth century, a church that's been laid there that they're uncovering mosaic tile floors that are marked with crosses. If you're looking on your phone at the church website, you'll see that that's the final image that's there. Mosaic crosses all around the floor and big stones where people had chiseled crosses into it because even the worst of places that human history has ever thrown our direction was a place that when it toppled a church landed on top of it because Jesus was clear that his church could not would not be withstood by anyone that he and his power would move past all of them and it's an amazing illustration that that was true even in this very place in the very same soil now one of the weird moments that happens here though is that Jesus in verse 30 looks at the guy and says don't tell anyone you know who I am now I'm the Christ I am the one you've been waiting for but keep it on the DL a part of that, we assume, is that claiming to be a king in a world and a community that already had one is treason and a death sentence. It'd be like if you lived in North Korea and all of a sudden you and your friends start running around yelling that you're the new emperor. It wouldn't go over well with another dictator in power. Well, why keep it on the DL? Well, maybe another part of it is because Peter's hopes of what it would look like were far from what Jesus had planned. Peter and the Jews wanted a military leader to establish Israel's dominance and freedom once again. But Jesus looks at them and says, let's keep this quiet for now until you really understand what this is going to look like. In fact, look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Here's the shift, the progressive patient revelation of who he is in person to the immediate revelation of his purpose and coming. That is who I am. I am your king, but I'm not the king you were looking for. He spoke to them openly and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. 
For you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. He's saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, but I'm really not what you're expecting. Nor will I establish the kingdom that I'm here to establish in the way that you were hoping. I, the son of man, he says, I must suffer. Don't miss that. I must do this. The son of man, remember, that's not just talking about Jesus' humanity. That's reaching back, as we've discussed before, to Daniel chapter 7, where one like the son of man emerges with the authority and power of heaven and comes amongst men to establish a new kingdom. This is a claim to deity. I, the son of man, must suffer. It was a shocking moment for the guys. So shocking that Peter speaks up and rebukes Jesus. This is not how it's going down, Jesus. And Jesus responds and gives him this new nickname, which would have been a a gut punch for sure. But Peter is still seeing Jesus like the blind man. Like the blind man was seeing people fuzzy. It's not so clear still, not yet. See, here's the last thing. Is that this story teaches us about a king that no one expected. There's an illustration here that everyone can see. There's, there's also, though, there's a question here that everyone must answer. But there's a king here that no one expected. And this is where we land the plane. And you know what? If you're in a home group, maybe, that, maybe this week you take some time and maybe you get into the rhythm of taking some time of having people take turns explaining what, what point in your life, what brought you to the point in your life where you answered the question that Jesus is asking here, where you made a profession of faith and committed your life to Christ. Maybe it's a, a time for us to introduce into our home groups. Let's take turns sharing testimonies each week, just inserting a couple of them. But the final thing, this is the king that no one expected. The thing I think that Jesus said that was most shocking is the fact that he must suffer. He's not going to establish his kingdom like everyone else does. Well, in a sense, I guess he will. He'll establish it like everyone else. It's going to be a violent act in bloodshed. But it will not be the blood of someone else that will be shed. It will be that he will willingly, he says he must do it, he will willingly, purposefully allow his own blood to be shed to set up his own kingdom. That's what will establish it. For Jesus to say he must do this, he's not merely predicting it. He's not just indicating that he's planning on it. He's communicating that he's doing this voluntarily, which is probably what offended Peter most about his statement. But why? Why must he suffer? Why did Jesus have to do it this way? There's an author named Timothy Keller who wrote a book called Jesus the King about different stories in Mark's gospel. And I love the way he succinctly put it just three different ways. And so I'll share those with you and then we're done. The first is that he, he tells you that the reason that he must suffer is because there was a personal necessity that Jesus suffered. There was a personal necessity for his suffering. It's a very personal necessity within all of us. He did not suffer for himself personally. He would suffer for me personally. See, in our world, there's a vast difference. We know this between genuine real love and fake shallow love. Fake shallow love, it it aims at using other people to fulfill your own happiness. It's love that's conditional. It's, It's love that you'll give as long as the other person is appreciating it and reciprocating it back to you. That's shallow love. But what we're longing for is something deeper than that kind of love. What we're longing for is a genuine love that that would spend itself for the benefit of someone else that would spend itself finding that the other person's joy is their own joy. It's the kind of love that a parent gets to taste when you bring home a newborn. Where for the first time you look down at that child and and it's that kind of love that transforms a person into a parent where you see your child and in that first instant, with that first glance, you are willing to love without any requirement, without any agreement of any reciprocation. It's the love that you experience in your first week of marriage, where you exchange vows. And for the first week of your marriage, it's so easy to give love without requirement because their joy is your joy. Because my joy is wrapped up in their joy. That's the battle in a marriage, isn't it? Is to stay in that place where your joy is my joy. Where your happiness, where me serving and loving you as Christ has served and loved you, is what brings me joy. That's real genuine love. But the problem is, real genuine love that's unconditional, it's unconditional because regardless of what you receive in the end, you're still willing to give it because your end goal is not about what you receive. The problem is we can't always find people 
who will fully love us, who are, who are capable of giving that kind of true love. And we ourselves, we know in ourselves, we're not capable of giving it. We give it in moments for sure. But I'm saying that it doesn't exist in perfection on a human level, and it leaves us longing for something more. We need to find someone to love us who doesn't need us, who isn't looking for anything in return from us. We need someone who's completely self-sufficient within themselves. Someone who's capable of just giving. Someone who can love without a need. Jesus becomes that. Jesus is that. Where God made you not because he needed anything from you. He made you because within himself, like a healthy family should make the decision to have a child, not because of... Two people look at each other and say, you know, it's not working. This is really hard. Maybe we should bring a child into this and that'll make things easier. But instead, two people look at themselves and say, we love each other. And this is a beautiful thing that we have here. Let's invite someone else into this so that they can experience what it's like to be loved like this. That's the triune relationship that God had within himself that he then invites those he made in his image into that experience of love. That's what Eden was. He made you not because he had any lack or needed anything from you, and he loves you today, not because he needs anything in return from you. This is the love that Jesus has for us. There's a personal necessity, but there's also a legal one. There's a legal necessity that Jesus must suffer for. You see, here's how this works. When a person wrongs you, a debt is always established that has to be paid back by someone. You can think of this on an economic level. You can think of it as someone borrows your money or borrows your car and they squander the money or they wreck your car. In the end, if you choose to forgive them, then it still costs someone. It's just that it costs you rather than them to forgive that debt. But think of it beyond just an economic level. Think of it as someone who's robbed you of an opportunity, who's robbed you of happiness, who's robbed you even of reputation. For you to forgive them means you're saying you don't have to pay to make it right. All feel the weight of this. That person has created a debt, and you can either get even and make them pay it, or you can forgive them, and what you do when you forgive them is you absorb the cost within yourself. And this is part of why it hurts so bad to forgive. This is part of why we're so slow to forgive, is because it costs us because we absorb the cost within ourselves. But this is what Jesus does, and this is why he says, I must suffer. Because the only way for God to pardon us instead of judge us was, was for him to go to a cross to absorb the cost for us within himself. Jesus said, I must suffer. It's both shocking and true that when we look upon his suffering on a cross, we begin to realize that Jesus in that moment will be treated as an enemy so that you and I can be treated and welcomed as sons. He must suffer. There's a personal necessity, a legal necessity, but there was also a cosmic one. A cosmic necessity. In Hebrews it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Blood isn't magical, but the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood, bloodshed in the Bible, it always talks about a life that's been cut off before its time. That's been taken before its natural end. What Jesus is saying is that you have to suffer a violent death at the hands of wicked men. But Jesus, his death in that moment, his suffering would not just be a payment. His death would provide a cosmic demonstration. Remember Romans 5.8 says that while I was a sinner, that Christ demonstrated something. He demonstrated at least two things on a cross. He demonstrated that this, this sinful fallen world system is so corrupted that it's broken. That's the first thing he demonstrated. Think about it. The only person ever walked planet Earth who was perfect was taken before the people who are the good people who are in places of power to uphold justice and they put him to death. The cross took us to this bleak moment in time that shows us with clarity how deeply sin has marred God's good creation. You see, in, in creation condemning, in humanity condemning Jesus, we ultimately were condemning ourselves. Because we are demonstrating just how broken and backwards we are. How broken our system is. The world is more than just exposed that day, though. Jesus defeated the broken system that day. Because he did not win through violence, using the system to gain power. He didn't fight fire with fire. 
The cross is suffering. It would demonstrate not just how broken the world was, but it would also demonstrate how incomparable Jesus' love is. It demonstrated the amazing, incomparable nature of the love of God. You see, the cross didn't just show us that the world's broken. It showed us just how good and loving, compassionate, and gracious Jesus is. That's what it showed us. So when Jesus says he must suffer, we have to recognize there's a personal necessity. There's a legal necessity, but there is a cosmic one that for all of eternity, all of eternity will look the direction of a cross to see what was displayed in that moment. And it wasn't just how broken the world is, but it was how good and loving and gracious Jesus is. My friends, I'm not here to remind you of some system of redemption each week. I'm just here to point you towards a person, a redeemer, the person of Jesus each week. Our hope, not a system that we place our hope in. No, a person that we place our hope in. And for all of us, we have to answer Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? And respectfully, I think we've, we've charged through Mark's gospel up to this halfway point. And for some of you, you've been here and maybe you're still wrestling through and maybe you feel like the disciples. I'm still seeing things fuzzy. I don't know what I think Jesus of you. You have to answer the question, who do you, not just men around you, like your family says this, your spouse says this about Jesus. I know that there are lots of people, the guy up there, the talking head, he says this about Jesus, but who do you say Jesus is? You've got to make a decision. It's what this passage is, is placed here for, not just to show us that they realized it, but it's beckoning for us to make a stance, a statement of faith that Jesus, I believe, there's an invitation here. I think there's even an invitation for those of us who are already following Jesus. And the invitation is, well, in which area of your life would Jesus show up in and say, who do you really say that I am? In your marriage, who do you say he is? Are you willing to be forgiving and gracious? Do you say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the one who must suffer. You're the one who took my place. You're the one who paid for it all. You're the one who loved and gave. And because you've given so much and forgiven me of so much, how could I withhold forgiveness from someone else? In your own marriage, he'd show up and say, well, who do you really say that I am? As you make just decisions throughout your week, he shows up and says, well, who do you really say that I am? As you prioritize your, your schedule and, and, and even where you invest your time and your money, he shows up and says, who do you really say that I am? If he's Lord, then it ought to be seen in every area of our life. There's an invitation here where Jesus asks us this same question. 